What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their example and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Aileen Lerner, the founder of a company called Interviewing.io. Aileen, this episode has been a long time in the making. Glad to finally have you on here. Hey, <laughs> very excited to be here. Big fan. Right at the top of your website, you say that technical interviewing and looking for a job as a software engineer are annoying and that at Interviewing.io, you make both of these things less terrible. Tell us about how you do that. <laughs> I wrote that copy. I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> that was one of my questions I was going to ask. Who wrote this copy? Was it you? It was, it was me. It was me. For better or for worse. I'll tell you a bit about some earlier copy we had later, if, if you'd like. The one I was very proud of that we can't use anymore. Um, so uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what a great start to this interview. This is amazing. <laughs> what do you do? What is interviewing IO? Who uses it? Why do they use it? So interviewing IO is... Well, depending on who I'm pitching, I, I position it very differently. But given that this is mostly, I think our, our listeners are mostly software engineers, right? We're, we're a platform that provides people with really high quality, free and completely anonymous mock interviews. Then we also make it easier for you to get a job if you want. So I can, I can go into a bit more detail on what that means. Basically, I used to be, maybe I should introduce myself. What do you think? Yeah, who are you? Yeah, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll, I'll come back. So I'll tell the like windy story of why I operate in this space, even though hiring is gross. So I was a software engineer for, for a few years, about five. One of the things that was always hardest for me was hiring people, right? It was uh, either, it was at best kind of a painful distraction. And at worst, it was just this kind of Kafka-esque nightmare. So one of my biggest frustrations when I was an engineer was just that a lot of the best people I was working with didn't look good on paper. Like there's a guy that one of the best engineers I ever worked with at the job where I was the longest, who I think did a semester at some like fifth tier state school and then dropped out because he realized it was dumb and then um, uh, went to work. And when he applied, we almost turned him away because of that, even though his high school friend, who was among the best engineers I've ever worked with as well, really gave him a strong referral. So that really upset me. And, and, and stuff like that happened all the time. I think we all have friends that are amazing engineers years that just don't look great on paper. So I ended up in part because of these frustrations and in part because I didn't want to write code for the rest of my life, uh, ended up transitioning to technical recruiting. So I started by just doing recruiting stuff at the software company where I was working because all of us were constantly getting interrupted to do interviews and then we had to go back to work and we were doing everything from our own scheduling to just looking at resumes. It was it was not the best use of our time. But then I really got into it and I just saw how broken recruiting was. So I ended up running uh, recruiting at a couple companies. One was trial pay and one was Udacity. You've probably heard of, of Udacity, maybe not trial pay as much. Um, then I started my own recruiting firm. And what was really annoying was, again, I just kept running into this issue over and over. When I was recruiting for a bunch of startups in the Bay Area, I would have candidates that I knew were amazing because I had run them through super rigorous 
technical interviews myself, right? And I just put the alien learner stamp of approval on them. Like, not that that necessarily meant that much, but in, in, in my world, I like to think it meant something. And I would present them to companies and companies, the recruiters, these companies would just look at this candidate and be like, we don't want to talk to them. And I'm like, but they're really good. I know they're really good. And they're like, ah, we don't care. We're hiring from these five schools and they have to have worked at one of these companies as well. And, and, um, that just really pissed me off. So I started interviewing IO to stop that kind of thing from happening. So on our platform, if you're a software engineer, when you sign up, you can just grab a time slot. And then when you show up at go time, there's going to be a senior engineer from a Google or a Facebook or a Dropbox or a Microsoft or any number of other companies that tend to have pretty difficult technical interviews, that engineer is going to run you through a very realistic, either algorithmic or systems design interview, and they're not going to know who you are. So you can screw up all you want without any negative ramifications. And if you do do well, then you can unlock our jobs portal. And then with one click, you can book a job interview at a number of great companies. So we we work with um, companies like Twitter and Lyft and Uber, Dropbox and a number of others. The nice thing is now instead of having to get your friend to refer you or having to apply online, which is like screaming into a black hole, right? You'll never, never hear back. Or having to hope that the recruiter that contacted you six months ago when you weren't looking is still working there. They're probably not. You just press one button and then you have a guaranteed technical interview at that company probably the next day. And it's still anonymous. So the company doesn't know who you are until you do well. That was a very long answer to a very short question. Did that make sense? It made perfect sense. You said a couple of cool things in there that I want to talk about. You said that you work in hiring, even though hiring is gross. You said that (laughs) recruiting is broken. Let's say you could snap your fingers and change the industry, change the entire industry of hiring software engineers. And you can do this once with each hand. So you can change two things. What two (laughs) things would you change? I feel imbued with godlike powers. You are. Gosh. Welcome to the Index Podcast, Aileen. (laughs) (laughs) So some butterfly effect stuff here. I don't know. I'm just very, very paralyzed. Well, look, um, the thing I, I, I find just immensely frustrating is just that good people don't have access to opportunity. So I guess, um, what I would do if I could snap my fingers is, well, actually, I'm going to I'm gonna answer this a bit facetiously first, is I just wish everybody used interviewing IO because I like the thing we've built there is the thing that I want to see in the world, right? This idea of you're evaluated on what you can do and not how you look on paper. And also this idea of just to back up a bit, like the way hiring works, and this is why I said it's gross, is... Um, It's just such an antiquated process. I think a lot of our hiring approaches come from a time when there was a shortage of jobs and a surplus of candidates, right? So if you read a typical job description, they're garbage, right? They're like the worst. And if you read a typical job description, it's just this long list of bullet points saying stuff like, you have attention to detail and you're not a murderer and, you know, just all this like dumb stuff that has nothing to do with the job. I mean, I guess like not being a murderer, maybe you you, you want to filter for, yeah, (laughs) I guess it depends on the job. But 
generally the the way these things are written is is meant to exclude right and and it's it's meant to be like oh we have all these people beating down our door and make sure that you fit these criteria that's not how hiring works anymore right uh, especially in software engineering there is a shortage of good people and a surplus of jobs but the processes we're running are not optimized at all to make candidates uh, move through the process fast or to add value or do anything it's it's weird there's this tension between we need to hire all these engineers and then you apply to a company and then they give you like a two-week coding challenge to do that they don't pay you for you know <laughs> like it, it doesn't make any sense so I just want like hiring practices to line up with market dynamics so if there's a shortage of candidates you should roll out the red carpet for them and treat them well and if there's a shortage of candidates you should be looking at talent pools that aren't just Google and, and MIT alums that's actually the right answer when asked what everybody should be using <laughs> to answer with your own company name so yeah, this was a test. Did I pass? I hope I passed. Yeah, you got it right. Whew, thank God. So you are a hiring and recruiting expert. There are a lot of people listening who are themselves software engineers or who are starting companies that hire software engineers. So I want to come back to this topic and just mine you for information. But first, I want to talk about why, why does this process of interviewing and hiring suck so much? I know does, right? a lot of people who would not be founders today if it wasn't so scary or difficult to interview as a software engineer. I'm I'm so terrified of having a job. My God, oh, oh! There's so much shit I will do to not have a job. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go through this list. What would you do to not have a job, Aileen? Oh my God, I don't know. Start like, a company. I, yeah, I think I would. I would definitely do that. And starting a company is miserable. I mean, it's. I guess it's um. It, what, what's that line about war? Like that it's like long, long uh, periods of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's entrepreneurship is, is kind of like that too. So <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, you are a founder. So why are you a founder? What do you like about doing this? I feel like I'm lying on like a, a psychoanalysis couch at the moment, right? I don't know. I, I think that there's a there's a certain personality that goes with being a founder. Um, that's not always true, right? Founders come in all shapes and sizes and temperaments. But for me, I've just always had issues with authority, I think. So I've had issues with just having to do stuff that that didn't necessarily make sense to me. And at least when you have your own thing, you... You, you might be telling other people to do all sorts of stupid shit. I mean, my staff will attest to this, but at least it's your stupid shit, right? And, and, um, you have some, some control over your destiny. So, so that's one. Two is, I don't know if this has been your experience, Cortland, but like, there are some things I'm pretty good at. There's a lot of stuff I'm bad at, but like, I don't know that there's just one thing I want to do with my time, right? here you just when you're a founder you get to solve all sorts of weird problems all the time and i think that's really interesting and those problems are cross-functional and they they really just uh, stretch you to the limits of, of your ability and some of them are really boring and you wish you didn't have to solve them but a lot of them are things that you've never done before and and i think that's that's really cool it's definitely been my experience as well you've been at this with interviewing io for four years now right mm-hmm that's right. You've got a dozen people that you're working with full-time on this. You've got many more contractors. So you've created jobs. You get to tell them what to do. No one's telling you what to do. Well, they, I mean, people still tell me what to do. I actually, <laughs> I, I'm grateful for it. A lot of my, my employees know what to do better than I do. So I, okay. I try to listen. Yeah, great. That's even better. Your employees are so good. They're telling you what to do. You've got a cool company that's actually helping fix an industry that you know a lot about and that you're passionate about. You've grown your revenue to multiple millions of dollars per year in just the last four years. So 
overall, you've, you've come a long way. You've accomplished a lot. Thank you. Having accomplished all this, would you say that it's worth it? Are you happy? I don't know if I'm happy, but I'm certainly happier than I've been before I had this job. Um, I think one of the nice things, and I think you and I talked about this in the past, right? This idea of like, when you're a founder, even if you're sort of tactically miserable, right? You don't have time to be existentially miserable. So you're so busy and, you know, hopefully you're doing something that you find meaning in, even if, you know, certainly nothing has meaning, right? Everything is completely chaotic and meaningless and the universe gives zero fucks about you. But in your little corner, you've kind of uh, created the suspension of disbelief that what you're doing matters. And as long as you have that lodestar of like, hey, I'm doing this something that matters and you pretend that it does, then all of a sudden, even if if your life is terrible, even if, you know, one, one quarter, you, you know, y- your revenue goes down or like, you know, people leave your company, all sorts of things happen that are very, very stressful when you run a business. But you don't lay around at night thinking, you know, why am I here and what am I doing? And this is the first job where I felt that way, where I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, I don't care how miserable I am on a day-to-day basis. I will trade that for being kind of existentially purposeless. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about some of these other jobs where you didn't feel like you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. What were some of those jobs? I've generally been fortunate enough to work in companies where I've liked the people that I work with and some jobs I stayed at way longer than I would have otherwise because I love the people. But every job I've had after the first, I don't know, sometimes the learning curve was more steep than other times. But eventually, once you figure out what you're doing and you're not overwhelmed, it's like, why Why am I doing this? And it, it didn't matter how great the company was. It didn't matter how, how good my coworkers were ultimately, although that, that did keep me pretty happy day to day. It always felt felt a little bit empty. I, um, I used to cook for a living. Like, I guess that job for a minute satisfied my existential, um, existential longings because it was so difficult and I was so bad at it, at least for the first few months. That, you know, I didn't have time to think about other things. And that job was was really, really cool. And then eventually I figured out that, like, I'm never going to be Tony Bourdain. Bourdain, Bourdain. God, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. That's embarrassing. But I, I realized I wouldn't be him. And uh, at that point, I, I quit. But, like, for a little bit, that job was was um, almost as fulfilling as as doing this, but never quite as. I want the story of how you got there. I mean, how does someone who is now a software engineer running a tech company, how did you even become a cook in the first place? Um, well, so I, as you know, we, we, uh, we're we both MIT alums. And it's a great school, but it also kind of bleeds you dry, or at least it bled me dry. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was just so burnt out on academics that when I graduated, I didn't really have a plan. and. I really liked watching Food Network. <laughs> so I'm like, let me, <laughs> if there's a time in my life to do something absurd, right? It's when I'm 21 and 22 and not when I'm 30. And uh, I, I thought about going to culinary school. I think uh, culinary school is like the, the coding boot camp, right? So, uh, you know, uh, if, if you look at coding boot camps, um, websites, uh, and, and you talk to, uh, the people that are trying to get you to go there, they'll promise you the world, right? 
and they're they're not cheap. Fortunately, these days, some of them are aligning their incentives better with students, and then you don't have to pay until you actually get a job. But that's not how it always was, and there's still plenty of them where you just have to pay quite a bit of money up front. So I thought about going to culinary school, which as it turns out, here's some, something crazy. Back when I was at MIT, I think it was full, if you pay uh, full, if you pay retail, <laughs> going to college is something like $17,000 a semester. I think it's a lot more now. This dates me a little bit. But back then, culinary school, you'd go for three semesters. It was like an associate's degree and it was 50 grand. So to go to some crap culinary school, it costs the same as going to MIT. So uh, that was just not an option for me, especially I went and I talked to some chefs and I realized that once you graduate from culinary school, you're going to get the same job as people that didn't go to school at all, except you're now $50,000 in debt and you're making $11 an hour. What a deal. So with this, the best, right? Uh, what's a deal for the schools? They're, they're fucking killing it, right? <laughs> but um, How do I get into the school business? Yeah, right? Let's, let's open a culinary coding boot camp, just like really <laughs> screw everybody in every capacity, right? Um, <laughs> I, I chose not to do that. And I, I found a restaurant that I, I just looked on Craigslist and there are all these restaurants that were hiring cooks and I didn't know how to do anything. I had taken one class in college called Kitchen Chemistry did you ever take that one? I didn't even know that was a class. See, yeah, it's it's like during you get like two credits, or I forget what a credit is. I've been out of college, but you get some like nominal portion of 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 whatever credit you normally get for a regular class, and then you make pancakes and you hang out, and it's it's really great. So I took that class, but that was about it. I didn't know how to chop anything. Didn't know. It. So I I found um, finally after applying to like a hundred restaurants on Craigslist, most of whom laughed at me, I found one that was like, hello you can come here and work for free. And I was like, great. So I worked for free for three days. They taught me how to chop vegetables and then they started paying me. And then from there, I, I tried to make the next job I went to better than the previous one. During your stint as a cook, were there any experiences you had or lessons you learned that have helped you out subsequently during your life as a founder? I think actually the, the most lasting thing that I learned was about hiring. <laughs> To, I'm not just just uh, making that up to bring it back. This this is this is hundred percent true. Like I, I was fascinated by how restaurants hire people. So if you want to work at a restaurant, nobody gives a shit about your hopes and dreams. Nobody really looks at your resume, even though your resume is kind of meaningless in that industry as well. You just come in and you bring your knives, and uh, in the morning they show you how to set up your station and you're prepping. So that means you're making sauces, you're chopping vegetables. I mean, in some restaurants they also like put an onion in front of you and they're like, "Chop this onion," and you're like, "Okay." <laughs> then you chop the onion. You know, you you basically uh, set up your station, and then during service, so you know, come five o'clock, uh, people start showing up for dinner. They show you how to uh, do the dishes that your station is responsible for, and then all night you're just putting out those dishes. And then they're watching you and they're like, are you doing a good job? And then at the end of the night, if you do a good job, then they feed you and they make you an offer. <laughs> and if you don't do a good job, they send you home. Maybe they feed you if they feel sorry for you. But uh, it's it's very, very fair, or at least you know much more fair than anything I'd ever seen in an office setting. And I, I didn't quite realize how much of an impact that had on me until years later, but I filed it away and that's the kind of uh, fairness I'd like to bring to our industry. Yeah, that'd be like being a developer and just going in and working a real day on the job. Exactly. Of course, you wouldn't do that because it'd take you a whole day just to get your environment set up. 
Yeah, totally. Like I, I wish somebody would crack that. Right. Um, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's harder because you don't have a day to give like, and why would you like when, when companies are interviewing you the standard way, it's a lot faster. So it's a complicated thing. Right. But, uh, there has to be a proxy where you don't really have to spend, I mean, like you said, a day is unrealistic because you have to just like, you know, clone your repo and like mess with config files and do whatever the hell you have to do. But, you know, uh, so you don't have to spend a few weeks working, but there has to be a better way than what we do now that, that serves the same purpose. So fast forward a little bit, you eventually quit your job as a cook. How did you transition into tech? So I quit my job as a cook uh, after about three years in the industry. And then I just had no idea what I wanted to do. I was sort of going through this quarter life crisis. I think I was 25 at the time, so it was apt. And I remember, uh, well, one, I had, I was out of money, right? I was just completely out of money. I I had saved a lot of money because I started a tutoring business when I was in college. And at the time, like, you know, my friend and I were raking it in. We're making like $50 an hour. We're like, holy shit. (laughs) We're -hmm. we're rich. Um, <laughs> we're so rich. And then I, I burned through, through most of my, um, tutoring money and, you know, went into debt and I just had nothing. So I saw this advertisement for this MIT program called Meet. They changed what it stands for, but back then it stood for, I think, Middle East education through technology. So the idea was, uh, they, they fly you to Jerusalem. And then you teach programming to a mix of Israeli and Palestinian high school students. I thought that was amazing, right? Because the whole thesis was, hey, instead of sitting around and talking about politics and the conflict, what if we just make, and this is very kind of hippy-dippy, like what if we just make people build stuff together with code? You know, then they'll find a common language and then um, they'll they'll build build some foundation for mutual respect. And I thought that was really cool. I wanted to be part of it. And I also had no money and there was a stipend and I had a place to live for the summer if I went to Jerusalem. So it was, it was just a, a win-win on, on all fronts. I don't think I've ever admitted that to the program. So, hey guys, like if you're listening, sorry, <laughs> I did it for good reasons also. <laughs> but that kind of got me back into programming because teaching something is the best way to understand it better yourself and, and fall in love with it, I think. So after that summer, which went super, super well and where I made some very lasting friends, uh, probably among the best friendships of my life, I, I came back and I was like, you know what? I can do computers. Computers aren't as bad as I remember. It'll be fun. And then I did computers for five years. I'd worked in tech, I guess during college, I had a number of internships. So it wasn't my first foray into writing code and production, but it was close to it. And I remember like preparing for job interviews back then after not having written, after spending three years like drinking and having plates thrown at me, it was, it was interesting to, to get back out there and, and interview. I remember I had to reverse a linked list and I'd forgotten what a linked list was. So that was cool. <laughs> but it, eventually I, I figured it out. Um, and then I spent most of my time actually, uh, at one company, which I never would have thought I'd end up there, but it ended up being an amazing place to work. And so many of the people that have worked there have gone on to be very, very successful. It was They're still around. It's called um, ClickTime. And they did um, SaaS uh, time and expense tracking. So I spent five years making timesheets and it was not as horrible as you would think. <laughs> okay, so you've got this amazing job making timesheets. Uh, the people around you are great. Why ever leave? Why ever go on to do your own thing? Well, I fell into recruiting there, right? So that was the place where I said, you know, we were all kind of jumping in and ramping up and ramping down. And 
constantly getting interrupted. So I was like, hey, this is this is cool. I think there's a real problem here. I think I what I didn't know at the time was that technical recruiters were not technical usually. Like that that blew my mind. I was like, how can people that aren't engineers be involved in filtering and vetting engineers? Just crazy. But that's that's how it works. And I thought, you know what? I'm an engineer and um I think that there's an opportunity here. That and after five years of doing computers, as I like to put it, I, I don't think I wanted to do it for the rest of my life. I like writing code to solve problems, but it doesn't like when I was in school, there are all these people that just lived and died for this stuff. Like this is all they lived and breathed and and you know, it was just so thrilling to them to code. And I, I knew that I would never, I want, if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best at it, or at least among the best. And I knew that if I didn't have this level of passion for the craft, I would never be the best. That and I, I, I'm not saying that I was a great programmer despite that, right? Like I was decent, but if you're decent and you don't love it, like your odds of excelling are very, very low. Yeah. Cause you're competing with people who are that really good and do it. who love it. Yeah. Do you like programming? I love programming, but it's also See, a means to an end. People for like me. you. <laughs> it's, an, it's a means to an end for me. I, I wouldn't code if I couldn't create cool things. I wouldn't do it just to sit on my computer coding all day. So I think I'll also probably never be the best software engineer because I'm not only doing it for its own sake. Yep. Yeah. Like the truth and beauty and beauty and truth thing. Okay. So at this point, you leave your job as a software engineer, you get into recruiting. You're a person who wants to avoid existential angst. You want to keep yourself busy. You want to be the best at whatever it is that you're doing. How do these two things inform how you approach your job as a recruiter and the next decisions that you make? Yeah. Um, well, so I um, I didn't quite quit my day job yet, so to speak. So what I tried doing was just moonlighting as a recruiter because I saw with third party, like there's so many shitty third party recruiters out there, right? And we were trying to fill roles and we were using agencies and I'm like, my God. And then I found out how much those people were getting paid. And I'm like, shit, you know, there's like, just like with the other, I'm like, this is a case where like my, my hopes and dreams and financial incentives line up really well. I'm like, this is a problem. I hate how unfair hiring is. And my God, there's so much money in the space. So how much were they getting paid? (laughs) So back then, um, it's, it hasn't changed very much. So I think right now, industry standard for a contingency recruiter, contingency means you, you get paid when you make a hire. So industry standard is somewhere between 15 to 20% of first year's base salary. So if a if software engineer makes 150 grand a year, right? What's a fifth of that? Well, 30 grand, right? So you get 30 grand every time you make a placement. So it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of money for not very much work. <laughs> It is more work than people think, though. There are, there are a lot of people that think recruiting is very, very easy, and I was naively one of them. It's not it's not easy. There is all this nuanced stuff that you realize once you get in there, uh, but it is like it's not a backbreaking job. I'll put it that way. So I started moonlighting as a recruiter. I had a few friends that had startups, and I was like, "Hey guys, can I just try to make some hires for you, and we'll we'll see what happens." and I could, and it worked well. And one of those companies was Trial Pay, and they took a chance on me and gave me the title head of technical recruiting, even though I had never worked as a recruiter before. So I'm forever grateful to them for, for doing that because it that's what got me started in this space. Um, and I, I was very fortunate to be able to land that position. One of the weird things about that job too was that uh, I was kind of half recruiter and half technical interviewer. So because uh, I could do technical interviews and I had been an engineer for years and years, 
they're like, hey, what if you're the one that just interviews our candidates and it'll sort of take the heat off the eng team? I was thrilled to do it. I was like, I'm going to learn something no matter what. Like, this is going to be cool. And I ended up doing something like five or 600 technical interviews in the year that I was there. Yeah. Yeah. There were some where I was doing like six a day and then I would just go home and sit in the dark and just, just, (laughs) you know, just like, God, what a day. But that also sort of helped me get here because I I started realizing there are a lot of patterns and and, uh, repetition to how interviews are done. And there's a lot of stuff that's bad. And that job also, what I, you know, whenever I'm doing something that makes me miserable, I don't know if you do this, but whenever I'm doing something weird or something that, that is arduous, I think, I'm going to write about this one day and then it like makes it better. And in this case, I was doing these interviews in part because I thought maybe I could write something interesting about it. And what I ended up doing, um, because I was the person that decided who got interviewed and then the person wasting my own time when I interviewed the wrong people that I felt okay, like uh, casting a very wide net. So I uh, talked to a lot of people and ended up writing a piece about what attributes of a resume might predict whether somebody gets an offer. So I interviewed all these people, looked to see who was successful, and then I looked to see who was already working at trial pay. And I um, I looked at their resumes and tried to see, like, is it the number of years of experience? Is it whether they went to a top school? Is it whether um, they know a specific programming language or framework? Is it Do they have uh, their own website? Do they have a GitHub? Do they have lots of projects? Did they work at a top company, right? Looking at all of these traits. And this is one of like the first thing that I ever really wrote on the internet that took off that also sort of shaped what I ended up doing later. But that in, in that analysis, when I wrote about it, I found out that the thing that mattered most, much more than where people worked and incidentally where people went to school didn't matter at all. But the thing that mattered most by far and away was how many typos and grammatical errors really? people had on their resumes. It, it, yeah, it was insane. I mean, I spent months manually counting. You can't like have a computer count typos because all resumes are full of acronyms, right? And all sorts of weird uh, proprietary technical terms. So like, yeah, really, there are three things that mattered. Number one was number of typos and grammatical errors. And of course, the fewer, the better. I almost said the less, the better. And then I corrected myself. Um, uh, the second thing was uh, how clearly they explained what they did at each position. So a bad explanation would be, I took part in the software development life cycle. <laughs> Whereas a good explanation would be, you know, my team was responsible for, you know, upgrading this thing or like building this 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 feature and this feature had this much traction and here's why it mattered, you know, like basically what you'd expect. And then the third thing that mattered was whether somebody had worked at a quote unquote top company that mattered least everything else, years of experience, advanced degree, college GPA, like all these other things didn't matter at all. That's interesting because it implies the top companies aren't doing that good of a job filtering people because if they were, then working at a top company would be a pretty good signal for whether or not somebody's good. Yeah, I think the idea was like, at least if somebody else was willing to marry you, maybe you're not the worst, you know, like, yeah, yeah, which is not not necessarily the best way to make decisions. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so you're a software engineer. At this point, you're working as a recruiter, basically. Did you think about how you could apply your skills as a software engineer to perhaps scale this business and turn it into something bigger? Well, so I did. Well, the reason, part of the reason I wrote that blog post I was just talking about is I was trying to come up with like the ultimate logistic regression of truth, you know, where you could have a 
it started as a hackathon project. Like it, I put in someone's resume and it would just give me a score. Well, the score was really either yes or no, because that's ultimately all you care about, right? So uh, I started that way. I realized very, very quickly that that was not going to work. The resume fundamentally just does not have enough signal to extract any kind of meaningful decision. That's why I'm very skeptical, incidentally, of any like AI hiring startups, because I don't know what they're they're using to get signal. But I, I there's no magic. There's just like not there's not that much info available from people's public profiles to decide can they code or not, right? So when I realized that didn't work, um, I realized that there has to be some other way to get data about candidates that would be more meaningful. And I, I kind of got there organically. So after I wrote this thing about typos and grammatical errors, I published it and people liked it. And then by this time, I had started my own recruiting firm where rather than just working at trial pay or Udacity, I was a doing my own thing and hiring for about 40 or 50 companies because uh, I had started writing all this stuff on the internet about how hiring was totally broken. A lot of really good candidates started approaching me saying, hey, you know, I'm non-traditional on paper. Can you help me get my foot in the door at a top company? And I didn't know what to do with them because, uh, you know, my normal approach is useless here. I couldn't look at their resume and didn't tell me very much. And their resumes in particular, I didn't know how to parse because I'd never heard of their employers or their schools, if there was even a school. So I just started interviewing them. And then I realized, you know what, if there's a way I can make a platform where we get people's interview performance, and then on top of that, if we can trick companies, I told you earlier just how frustrated I was that companies wouldn't talk to my candidates, even though I said they were good. So like if there's a way to like get candidates to hang out on this platform, do interviews, surface the best people, and then force companies to talk to those best people despite themselves, then there's going to be a business. And, and that's how interviewing IO came about. Was this like a flash of insight, like one night in the shower, just boom, it hits you? or It might have been it? on the toilet, I think, <laughs> which is where I do a lot of my best thinking. Um, it, I'm not sure, but it's very possible. It was either the this shower. This is not the, the important the, half of the question. <laughs> Sorry. No, but I'm like, I've got, I've got the answer. Cortland, listen, it was on the toilet. <laughs> All right. A flash of insight on the toilet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you at some point turn this into a plan for your business or a strategy or a roadmap or something? I, to this day, like I have, I'll be honest, I have no idea what a business plan is or how to write one. I don't like either. people keep right, and people keep talking. I'm like, what? What is that? I don't know. This seems like a waste of time. The way I I tried to validate it was uh, well, I mean, I. I tried to do something out of necessity. So I was running this recruiting firm and then I had this idea and then I thought, well, I'm making a lot of money being a recruiter. Do I really want to just shut this down and do this random thing? I don't even know if like, I think people want interview practice, right? That's something I'd kind of figured out from doing a ton of technical interviews back when I was a trial pay, but I wasn't sure. So I put up this really, really shitty marketing site uh, on Hacker News and it said, free, anonymous, or maybe it's a practice. Actually, it said something pretty similar to what our marketing site says now. So it said practice interviewing with engineers from top companies anonymously, something like that. And it was number one on Hacker News for, I think, two days. And something like 7,000 people signed up the first day. Whoa. So I was like, okay, time to quit my job. Time to time to shut down my little recruiting firm and do this instead. My favorite piece of copy from that site, incidentally. Um, so I was like practice interviewing. I, I I promised you earlier I would tell you my favorite piece of of copy for better or for worse. I may regret this, but 
was practice interviewing with engineers from top companies, blah, blah, blah. And then um, underneath it said, it's like chat roulette, but without the dicks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And we had this marketing site probably for the first year that we were in business, maybe more. It still said it. We were signing all these enterprise customers that were hiring through us. And at some point, one of our favorite customers, um, my, my main contact point from there, called me up. And he's like, Aileen, I like you. We like working with you with interviewing IO. We think this is funny. But not all of us think this is funny. Some people on our team think that the dicks thing is a little offensive. Can you please take that down? And we did. We're a bunch of sellouts. You are. You had a <laughs> you had a person you had a personality. You know, you had a soul. Yeah, yeah, no more. That's what happens when you start a business. That's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Kids don't start businesses eventually. You have to take down the dicks. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Okay, well, this leads perfectly into my next question. As a founder, you're, you're the person who really wears all the hats. You're not just sitting on the toilet coming up with ideas, but you're also the person who's writing the marketing copy, as you did so artfully, Aileen. You're also <laughs> building the product in most cases, or hiring the people to build the product. You're doing sales. You're doing everything, really. And I think as an employee, sometimes it can be hard to make that transition because you're like, oh my God, I have to do everything. You know, The responsibilities of my job are usually pretty circumscribed. Like, How am I going to wear all the hats? How did you deal with making this transition, Aileen? Because you were a software engineer for five years. How was it for you to transition into basically being responsible for everything? Yeah. um, I think one of the things that's, if I think about me before I started a company or I think about people I know that are not founders, one of the biggest uh, attitude shifts that I've had to make um, and uh, that maybe people that have a normal job don't have is that there's no playbook, right? And that there's also no wrong answer, right? I think people often get very paralyzed before they do something because they don't know exactly the right way to do it. Once you have to do, one of the, the, I think the worst thing you can do is just to, especially if you're starting a company, is to just sit there and, and agonize over what you should do. It doesn't matter if you pick the wrong thing, you just have to do something. And then no matter what, just kind of accept that everything you're going to do is probably going to be wrong, but as long as you're right, sometimes that's probably good enough. And as long as you can figure out what you did wrong and iterate on it. And this is, this is a, this is not rocket science. This is like every, every blog about being a founder will probably say the same thing, but I will cast my vote. This is absolutely true. So even, you know, it, if you're trying to hire for your startup, let's say you started a company and you need somebody to come work for you. It's very tempting to spend hours being like, oh my God, who do I reach out to? Are they even going to respond to me? How do I source talent for my new startup? And the fact is, the worst thing you can do is just sit there and not source talent. No matter what, like the first few batches of emails that you send to people are going to be crap, right? (laughs) Like you don't know how to talk about your business. The things that you think are interesting about your business may not be the things that other people think are interesting. You're probably not good at talking about what you do concisely because in your head, there are like 50 moving parts and each of them is endlessly fascinating. But the reality is most people don't give a shit. So how do you distill your messaging? And, and that just comes with, with uh, failure and with repetition. I think that's, that's the big difference. Or um, if you're a job seeker, I'll, I'll go with your analogy, right? Especially if you don't look great on paper, the best thing you can do, I mean, people just get in this rut where they just start uh, robotically sending resumes to companies and then getting annoyed when they don't hear back. The fact is no one's reading those in the first place, so you shouldn't feel bad and you shouldn't be annoyed. But the best thing you can do is probably reach out to people that work at those companies. And that's really hard because you're 
making yourself vulnerable and you're reaching out to a person that you have known nothing about and you don't know what to say. But that feeling, if you can get over it and actually just like write, let's say somebody at a company you want to work wrote a really cool blog post and it's about something you're interested in. Maybe it's a project that you'd like to work on if you worked at that company. If you can get over that sort of terror <laughs> and and write to them and say, hey, I saw that you did this thing and it's really cool. And I've been thinking about something along the same lines and I really wanted to know like how how you did this. That's good enough. And then once you do a few of those, that breaks the seal. And if you can take that approach to every unknown that you encounter in the future, you'll, you'll be okay. So I think like just finding the activation energy, right? Getting over that little, little hump and, and, and doing that is, is the big difference. And some people never get over it. And, and uh, the people that do, uh, I think, uh, especially if they have the temperament to be a founder, are probably going to be much happier. I love that point. There really is no well laid out path as a founder. There's nobody patting you on the back saying, "Good job, Eileen. You're doing the right thing. Keep going in this direction." Well, my mom, my mom still, still and dad, they they do that sometimes. It's yeah, nice. my mom. Does that too. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> she thinks every episode of the podcast is the best episode. Yeah, yeah. My my parents too. Well, my parents. My mom texted me recently, and she's like. Your podcasts are great. You sound so intelligent, but please, please, can you stop saying fuck? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, mom. Sorry, mom. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So as an employee, you've got a track laid out in front of you. You've got a boss telling you what to do, what not to do. You've got promotions. It's all very comfortable. It's all very guided. As a founder, you've got none of that, but you still have to make decisions and actually take action. I want to talk about the actions that you took at the beginning of interviewing IO. What was the very first thing you did after you decided that this was the problem that you wanted to solve? I think I tried to find a co-founder that because I I felt really overwhelmed. Actually, um, I kind of felt like I was holding an atom bomb in my hands and I didn't know what to do with it. So I, I put up this crap marketing site with the dicks on it or the ref, whatever it was, right? And people just signed up, and um, I I was like, the universe has handed me a gift. And in the hands of, of a more capable person, this gift would be taken to fruition and realized. And instead, this gift has been handed to me. It's a lot of pressure. And yeah, like, what, what do I do with this? And um, I was like, you know what? I, I don't think I, I have the um, wherewithal to do this alone. I think I need help. And I, I certainly don't want to build, like, this is going to be a complicated product, right? On our... In, our product hasn't really changed um, from inception till today. We've made some changes. Certainly, the UI has gotten better. The, you know, we've uh, we've built more features for employers. But at the heart of it, we had to build something um, where people could talk to each other anonymously and write code and submit feedback. And then we wanted those people to get ranked, and we wanted scheduling to work. And we there's you know it, it was a it's not rocket science, but um, it's a lot for one person who hates coding <laughs> to, to build. So fortunately, we were able to to use CoderPad. I remember you had Vincent on 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 the show, uh, one of my favorite episodes. Um, so uh, I think maybe even I went to him, and I'm like, "What do I do?" <laughs> uh, we had met because he read my blog. Um, I think it was the the post about how resumes are stupid and typos matter. <laughs> so. You know, fortunately, we were able to use CoderPad within our product and, and license it. But even outside of that, there are a lot of moving parts. So I went around trying to find a co-founder and my friend Art, he wasn't really willing to leave his job full time, but but he was willing to jump in and and help and, and sort of build something to get the product off the ground. On top of that, I remember as a proof of concept, 
to do the first few. We wanted to see if anonymous interviewing could even work before we built too, too much, right? Uh, we generally tried to build as little as possible and validate, right? It's, it's this lean startup idea. At the time, I didn't know what lean startup was. I just thought it would, because we were so strapped for resources that we should make sure this thing can work before we spend weeks trying to build it. So um, I remember it was me, um, Vincent, Parker, um, Parker Finney, who, who runs Interview Cake, you should have him on the show. He's fantastic. Who else? Art was there too. And and we just like emailed some of the people that had signed up through uh, that marketing site that was on Hacker News and said, hey, we're going to book you some anonymous practice interviews. And then we used Uber Conference and CoderPad and just like sort of stapled together some disparate things to try to make it look like it would be, an, it wasn't an anonymous interview. It was just like basically combining some tools together and, and making a, a flow that, that wasn't the worst. And we just interviewed those people to see if they liked it and to see if it would work. And then it seemed like it would. So at that point, Art and I started building some stuff. I'm a huge proponent of starting small. I think almost everybody should get started that way. And you really started well before writing any code for interviewing IO. You were interviewing hundreds of software engineers as a recruiter. What was it like interviewing somebody to be your co-founder? Uh, very different. I've never asked any. So Art ended up, like I said, he didn't join full-time. Eventually, I got my friend Andy to join. Um, and he's he's great. Um, but... None of those people, you know, I, I put through any kind of like technical interview. I mean, in part because I had worked with them previously on stuff, right? So I think for me, the biggest questions were one, do this person and I get along, right? Like, do we make each other better? Is it fun to be around them? Can I see myself being locked in a room with them for 12, 16 hours a day without, you know, biting each other's heads off? The second thing was, and this is really important for all early startup employees, not but not just co-founders, but can this person ruthlessly kind of decide what matters and not get lost going down technical rabbit holes? So can they build whatever, can they just like hack some shit together and then fix it later, right? Rather than um, having to build the thing perfectly. And also, do they know when it's important to stop hacking shit together and actually build something more robust like that, especially for a technical co-founder, like that's so much of what you do all day is make those decisions. And then lastly, um, I knew for me, I'm not a very linear thinker. I go all over the place. Um, I think this is something that frustrates the hell out of my employees. But I wanted somebody that was more of an analytical linear thinker and could sort of round out some of my flaws and imperfections and fill in those gaps. And hopefully I could do the same for them. That ended up being the case and, and was very lucky. That's such a good point about Wanting to hire early employees who know how much to code, know when to hack something together, know when to stop. It's basically knowing what the bigger picture is and not being so absorbed in your the money details of your job that you just want to be the best software engineer possible and you create amazing software that the company doesn't really need. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter. You can write the most beautiful stuff and you're you're out of business a few months later and it didn't even get to see the light of day, right? It's super tricky for for people who come from a software engineering background where it's all about, you know, having the right unit tests and making the best decisions and writing the best code because that's all you have to worry about. To being a founder when you've got 15 other things to worry about and the code's not the only thing that matters. So you have to be able to make these trade-offs. What kind of questions can you ask somebody to determine whether or not they're that kind of person? Honestly, gosh, I mean, what I did with uh, Art and then later with Andy was to 
just try working together. I mean, again, I knew both of these guys pretty well. I knew I got along with them. I knew that, you know, we made each other laugh. That's also really important, right? It's like, it's like dating, right? Or marriage, you, and everyone says this, but it's true. Like you have to just enjoy being around each other and you have to be able to diffuse tension with laughter because there's a lot of tension. But for us, like we just got in a room and we're like, all right, let's just let's just build some stuff. Let's like talk about, let's say we want to build this part of the product. Let's just start drawing some stuff on a whiteboard and being like, what would this look like? Are we aligned? You know, do we, do we care about the same things? And it's, it's really hard to ask that I think without just working on it. I think maybe if I were a better interviewer, which is ironic because I run a company called Interviewing IO, but if I were a better interviewer, um, maybe I could suss out some of these things through a series of very intensive top grading behavioral interviews. For me, the best thing to do is just get in a room and be like, let's build this part of the product together or let's design it together. And then it comes out very, very quickly if you're not aligned on things. And you don't always have to be, but then is it is it constructive when you disagree? Can you communicate well? Can you limit the communication overhead? Like how many words do you need to explain things to each other? It's basically a relationship. It's like a romantic relationship without the romance. Yes, exactly right. Or, or maybe you're both in love with a product rather than with each other. There you go. You both kind love a tr- uh, Yeah, it's like a weird three-way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a love triangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or maybe with your users, maybe you should be in love with your users and the product, but then, yeah, it's too complicated now. Yes. It's getting yes, out of hand, Aileen. It's like a love yeah. square now. Yeah. 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 We don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think with interviewing IO, it's obvious to me why software engineers love this. I mean, if you told me 10 years ago, Hey, you can do free anonymous interviews online. Is it free for engineers? Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course it has okay, to be. Yeah, you can do free anonymous interviews. I would have signed up in a jiffy because it's like I get to save face. I get to practice my interviewing skills, get better. I might even get a job out of it. The other side is probably much harder because you're dealing with probably a lot of engineers who aren't that confident to go through the normal channels, who aren't already getting interviews. I mean, as a company, maybe you don't really want to do business with interviewing IO because this is a weird new thing. How did you get your first few customers to sign up from the business hiring side of things? Yeah, that's. Um, thank you for asking. Um, it uh, the first few were harder than the you know last few. <laughs> Our pitch to companies is basically, hey, do you want to talk to some randos off the internet without knowing who they are and put edge time into it? So you can imagine how that that pitch can raise some eyebrows. Of course, that's not literally what we say, but that's kind of what people internalize. So we explain how it works. We say, look, resumes are stupid. And increasingly in, in the climate that we're in, fortunately, more and more companies are bought into this idea that a resume is not the source of truth, right? So that's that's been to our advantage, and I've written a lot about resumes. So that's also helped things things move along. But Honestly, um, for the first few customers that we landed, we had to let them try it out. Now, the proof really was in the pudding there because um, they would talk to a few of our candidates and then they'd be like, holy shit, you know, this is so much better than the people we're getting through our other channels and certainly better than um, better than the people that maybe even we're sourcing ourselves. Because when you're sourcing, you're looking at the same signals everybody else is, right? So there's no opportunity to, to arbitrage anything. So our, our employers would basically talk to a few candidates. We'd do free pilots where maybe they would talk to four to six. And then after that, uh, they see that most of those candidates are ones they wanted to engage with. In a typical good hiring process, maybe 20 to 25% of candidates make it from the technical screen to the onsite. 
And that's on top of uh, spending, you know, 10 hours a candidate to source them and then having to do recruiter calls before you know if the candidate is good. So you're really investing a lot of time and then only about a fifth or a quarter of people actually make it through to the next step. Uh, in our case, it's around 70% and you don't have to spend any time sourcing. So we save something like 200 and hour, sorry, 200 recruiting hours per hire and something like, uh, 15 to 20 eng hours. So it's non-trivial. And, and once people like got their heads around that, they were generally very committed. The other thing is, you know, especially uh, if, if you're thinking about starting a business where you want people to try your product, think about how your pricing can reflect that. So fortunately in our case, uh, at the beginning, we were charging these per hire fees and companies were already used to this idea of like paying a recruiter only if they made a hire. So it was de-risked and the pricing model was something that was already familiar to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, what's fascinating to me is that usually when you see an industry as crowded as the one that you're in, recruiting and hiring and job placement, you see prices get driven down. You see a lot of people coming in and saying things like, hey, you know, you're mm -hmm. charging 20% of the first year salary. I'll charge 15% to place an engineer. Or, hey, you know, I'll, I'll do it for a flat fee, $5,000 a head. Why hasn't that happened here? Why are you able to charge as much as you do? It's kind of moving in that direction. So it's gotten a little more commoditized. These days, most of our revenue is coming not from these per hire fees, but from um, large flat fee deals. So we'll approach a company, they'll try us out, right? They'll talk to a few candidates, see that those candidates are, are good. And then they'll generally pay us for a year of candidates up front, which ends up being about 50% cheaper than paying us per hire a la carte. So exactly what you describe is what's happening. But the other thing that I've seen, that aside, is that the, I think the reason it isn't as extreme as you describe is that companies are hurting so badly for engineers that price generally is just not a friction point when you're selling, right? If you can promise people that you can get really good butts and seats quickly, they're willing to pay a premium for it. So you said something earlier that really resonated with me, and that's that with interviewing IO, it felt like you'd been handed a gift, and you knew that in the hands of a very capable person, the gift would be taken to fruition, but... It's in your hands and you've got to be that capable person and you've got to be the one who makes this company work. I think that's something that a lot of founders can identify with. I identify with it. What are some of the best decisions you've made since starting that have helped you get to where you are today, where you're making millions in revenue, where you've got thousands of engineers that you're helping to find jobs and where you actually do feel like you're the right person for this? I think most of my good decisions have been the people I've hired. None of this would be possible if it were still just me. So just, it's been... It's been unreal. Like every time I, I look at, you know, I'm kind of, I'm sitting in an office that has a glass window, right? And I'm kind of looking out onto the office right now. And I'm just looking at the people that work here. I'm like, why the hell are they here? They could be anywhere. Like all of them, <laughs> all of them could be anywhere and they could be making more money. It's, it's crazy to me. Um, and it's, it's, I'm just so grateful that, you know, people that are really good are willing to to put their time into this. I guess like the thing I'm most proud of, and I think one thing that I, I did do well is create a business model where doing good is the thing that gets you paid. And I think that's rare. So in our case, we're trying to build this efficient marketplace. And the more efficient it is, that means um, hopefully the, the more, not hopefully, definitely, the more meritocratic it is, right? Like in hiring, efficiency is defined by like, are you hiring the right people for the right jobs? So the best people just, uh, the more the more you can, you, you can place the best people in the right opportunities, the more efficient you are. And then by extension, the more money you're making. 
So that's, that's crazy. Like you don't have to do mental gymnastics to be like, oh, you know, we're, we're doing this thing. And then through some kind of Rube Goldberg machine, eventually some good will happen in the world. It's like, no, this is a very, very direct A to B sort of journey. And, um, I'm, I'm so happy that, that, that is, is true. And I'm happy that the people that work here see it. I don't have a ton of experience hiring people. A lot of people listening in right now are fledgling founders or aspiring founders who are very soon going to have to start making hiring decisions. Uh, we're probably going to do a lot of things wrong. What are some things we can do to get it right the way that you have? Um, well, I've certainly, God, I've, I've messed up a lot of, like, ju- people think that just because I know stuff about hiring that it's easy for me. It's not. I've made some bad hiring decisions. I've, I've you know, let people go. People have left, right? These things happen. It sucks. They do. But I think one piece of advice that I would give, uh, especially to new founders, is to remember that if you're trying to hire software engineers in the market that we're operating in, Hiring is not a vetting process as much as a selling process. People don't have to work for you. So from the moment you engage with somebody, maybe you're sourcing them, you're writing to them saying, hey, come work for me. Maybe you're interviewing them. Make sure that every time you interact, you're adding value for them and you're giving them a reason why your company is awesome. So when you interview people, if you're fortunate enough to even get people to talk to you, um, think about what kinds of questions you can ask them that don't just vet their ability to write code, but also showcase why the problems you're solving are interesting and unique. So try to ask them cool real world stuff, you know, take them to lunch, um, spend a lot of time with them, care about what they care about and, and weave a narrative where the disparate path they've had up until this point culminates perfectly in working for you. And if you can't tell that narrative, maybe they're not the right person, you know? Um, and also like, don't, don't be afraid of saying no to a hire if it doesn't feel right. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure. You're like, shit, I need somebody working right away. I'm drowning. If, if it doesn't feel right, it's probably not. Okay, so let's get back to talking about how you grew Interviewing.io from something small into what it is today. And specifically, I want to talk about the sales side of things. You calling up companies and convincing them to take a chance on you to trust their hiring process to you, basically, I know in the early days, you were doing a lot of demos, a lot of trial periods, and just sort of hoping that people would choose to use you after they saw that it worked. I imagine things have changed a lot since then. So what are the biggest milestones and how your sales process has evolved? We still, you know, it depends on the size of the company. Um, if we're piloting with some like huge brand, I mean, we're, we're going to bend over backwards. We'll do whatever, right? <laughs> like, okay, try as many candidates as you want. I'm exaggerating a little bit because eventually we do want to get paid, but... Um, I don't know. It hasn't changed that that much. Certainly, our I remember the first time I made a deck to sell. Right, I like most of the selling. I when I when I was the only one doing selling, most of the selling I was doing was just like trying to have coffee with people and just doing a demo. Well, of course, listening to to their needs first, and then you know showing them the parts of the product that I thought spoke to their needs, but. Then eventually you get to the point where you have collateral and different decks and different decks for different audiences. And, and, you know, your, your sales process matures. Eventually, um, one of the milestones for us actually was hiring, um, a customer success person, um, where, you know, we have enough enterprise brands that work with us now that are used to a certain white glove, high touch kind of experience. Right. And, 
um, one of the guys that works for me, whose job it wasn't even to do sales, like he was mostly doing marketing and product, right? He and I were just running around playing whack-a-mole, trying to pretend that we had a customer success department. <laughs> and we were just running ourselves ragged and it wasn't good for anybody. So making that hire was great because it, um, you know, we put on our big boy pants at that point. And I was like, okay, okay, we have a person who's dedicated to making sure that customers are getting value out of the product. Other things that changed uh, early on, you know, I, I keep talking about how there's practice and then there are real interviews. Early on, um, we didn't have that. Everything was just one big pool. So some people were there uh, as practice interviewers, some people were there as candidates. And then we also told companies, you can just hang out in this pool and you'll be matched with people and hopefully they'll want to work for you and you can just sell them. So every interview was kind of practice until it wasn't. It was kind of this Ender's Game situation where it's like, oh, well, shit, I just ruined Ender's Game for everybody. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'll cut this out. That's what I'll do. Don't cut it out. It's funny. (laughs) I want to ruin it. <laughs> I, want to ruin I know you things. do, Eileen. I want to watch the I know world you're not burn. sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> I hope this whole exchange stays in. Um, no, um, so it was just like this one, one big pool. And one thing we learned from talking to our bigger customers and from listening to some of their interviews on our platform after the fact was that they did not want to have to sell that hard because they were leaning on their brand. If you have some big brand, you, sh- um, you know, you should be able to leverage that. So then we changed up our products. So we had a practice pool. And then for our bigger customers, candidates could sign up. And, and that, that was sort of a big turning point for us. Another big turning point was getting into subscription pricing. So stopping just doing uh, per hire fees and uh, making, uh, making it so companies just paid us some flat fee for some number of candidates. And that, that increased our revenue like 6x over the span of like a quarter or two. It was Whoa. crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. So there's a lot of advice floating out there for founders. We've talked about it a little bit this episode. We've talked about starting small and iterating. There's also, you know, do things that don't scale, talk to your customers, et cetera. Is there any advice that's common for founders out there that you don't think you follow, that you just kind of skipped over and things were still pretty much fine? There are a few things. So I um, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but I... I don't agree that you should be doing a lot of management early on in your growth, right? Like if you find yourself doing a lot of people management when you're like five people, six people, seven people, you're probably doing something wrong or you hired the wrong people. Like you should, when you're hiring this early, you should find people that um, that can sort of figure out what to do. And, and it's, your, it's your job to communicate constraints and goals to them. And then you you kind of just want to set them loose on those constraints and goals. Doesn't mean that you don't you know check in with them. It doesn't mean that you aren't helpful. But ultimately, if if you're looking over their shoulder all the time, either you're doing it wrong, or they're doing it wrong, or you're both doing it wrong. Another thing is um, people talk a lot about you know having a ton of different perspectives. If you have people that work for you that fundamentally aren't aligned with your mission and don't fit into the culture, it's bad, especially early on. And this may be a bit controversial, right? Because you you, you do want to kind of be encouraging of discussion and, and you, you want people to to suggest things. But fundamentally, everybody has to be marching in the same direction. And if they're not, it's going to kill you. It's exhausting. We, uh, we had some friction at, at interviewing IO, for instance, where, uh, you know, externally, people often think that we are um, first and foremost uh, 
platform that's dedicated to diversity and inclusion. And we certainly believe in both of those things, but that is first and foremost not what we do. We believe in talent being evenly distributed. We believe in surfacing it and we believe in giving great people opportunity. But um, we don't specialize specifically in creating opportunities for women or people of color, right? We're just like, we're just going to try to make hiring less bad (laughs) for everybody. (laughs) And we hope that that ends up creating a more inclusive environment and that anonymity is is something that's useful for people that feel marginalized. But, you know, we're not, we're not a DNI platform. You know, there are cases where people at the company uh, wanted us to go in that direction. And um, that's not something that I wanted to do. So fundamentally, it's, it's important that everybody has their eye on the same North Star. Okay, we've talked about some of the things that have gone right with your business, some of the decisions that you're proud of. What are some of the things that have gone wrong, where if you could go back in time, you would change them? And also in the present, what obstacles lie between you know, where interviewing IO is today and where it could theoretically be, where it's like the only solution that any company uses for hiring? Yeah, um, I think the main thing that's stopping us from being the only source of candidates for companies is our candidate supply, right? It's it's really hard to run a two-sided marketplace because you've got to balance, uh, in our case, the, the number of candidates and um, the number of open roles in companies. And keeping those balanced is really difficult. Like a lot of my job is sort of running back and forth between those two sides where I'm like, okay, shit, it looks like we're running out of candidates. All right. How do we turn that up? Oh shit. Okay. Now we have a surplus of candidates and I need to go back out and sell, or I need to empower um, other people to sell. So um, I, I wish, um, I wish I were kind of better at that stuff because it's really, really hard to keep things balanced. And um, I, I, I think that maybe if we were more aggressive and just like went all in on getting a ton of candidates and then said, screw it, like we're, we're going to find the companies later, maybe that would be a better way to do it. I, I just try to keep things balanced and that, that may not be the best way to do things. But so far it's worked. It's worked okay for us. Um, another thing that I, I think I did wrong is it just took me way too long to get started. So um, after I put up that, and this maybe will, will be poignant for your audience. So don't, don't make this mistake. So I put up um, that marketing site. We got all those signups. And then it took me like months to mobilize because I was terrified. Um, and I, I wish that I'd like just found a co-founder or just, just went for it myself the next day in retrospect, instead of just sitting there being like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? I've been handed this gift and I'm going to screw it up. What finally got you over the edge to actually start moving? I just got really angry at myself. Is is the honest answer? I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You stupid piece of shit! Just, just like you know, what's worse than than doing the wrong thing is doing nothing. And and it sounds so trite, but coming to that conclusion yourself can take time. There's a lot of stuff like that where you kind of just have to have that raw emotional experience on your own, and somebody can tell you the answer. Somebody can be like, "Alien, here's what you need to do." They can tell you what to do. You could read it in a blog post or a book. So you could listen to it on a podcast like this, but like it won't really resonate with you or make a difference until you actually struggle through it on your own and come out the other side. And you did come out the other side. You are now running a team. It's no longer just you struggling by yourself to get something done. I'm curious how your role has changed since then on a day-to-day level. Uh, you could still be getting your hands dirty with everything. You could be sitting back and making high-level decisions about sales and increasing the supply of developers. Uh, you could be delegating a lot of the stuff as well. So what's the balance like for you today? Yeah, well, we actually, um, so we brought on our, I mentioned earlier, we brought on a customer success person who's under the sales umbrella, and that's made my life a lot better. Um, We've also brought on our first actual salesperson, which has made my life better already. I guess a lot of my day-to-day is um, 
thinking like generally as a founder, you're spending time hiring always, or you're thinking about like when you need to do more hiring. One of my favorite things about my job is writing. So doing content marketing. Our blog has been such a great channel of users for us. And it's also been great for me because I get to write about things I care about. Most of our blog, um, if you check it out, of course, I'm going to plug it. It's blog.interviewing.io is about uh, data in interviewing. So how deterministic are technical interviews? Like how um, how consistently do people perform from interview to interview? What happens when you make women sound like men in interviews and vice versa? How does that affect outcomes? How mod? How, how does it? Uh, what matters um, in your coding style uh, when it comes to technical interview outcomes? Like, does it really matter if you write super modular code or not? And we we've examined all of these questions and a ton more. Uh, we've looked at what traits make people better interviewers. Um, and and these this is like my favorite thing. Um, I guess if I could just sit in a cave all day and write, maybe I would. <laughs> fortunately, I can't do that. But to this day, because I really enjoy doing it, I still do it. Though fortunately, other people on the team are now doing it as well. I do a lot of high level like product vision stuff, like what should we be focusing on? Um, what should our voice be? What features um, are going to get us the most bang for our buck without uh, as much work? Although again, um, you know, I'm trying to work myself out of jobs on all of these and we have great people that work for me now that think about the details of that and they probably do it much better than I do. Um, and then of course, fundraising is is uh, something you generally uh, have to do all the time as a founder, whether you're actively raising or thinking about raising or thinking about like what metrics are going to matter for your next raise. It's always in the back of your mind. What's the future look like for interviewing IO? At what point are you done? And at what point are you happy? <laughs> I'll be happy when hiring is fair. Um, that may never happen. I also may never be happy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I really love what we do now. And I just want to, I want to do it as long as, as it feels like it's fruitful and it feels like we're, we're moving the hiring world in the right direction. People have asked me about, you know, whether, I see an acquisition in our future at some point. And my answer to that is always, like if it's a partner that shares our vision for hiring being fair, uh, and if they can amplify our efforts, and if we believe in the way that that partner has done things to date, then we'd be very excited. I would love to be in a position where, you know, we're figuring out what makes people good at stuff. And no matter who people are, we just can put them in front of the right opportunities, then then I'd feel fulfilled. But um, short of having, you know, um, a bunch of resources and a partner that's going to do that. I think we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and try to do more of it. Sounds good to me. Um, Thanks, I've kept you long enough, Aileen. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a tradition that at the end of every episode, I ask you what your advice is for people listening in. We've got an audience full of people who are primarily, but not exclusively, software developers working full-time jobs. And a lot of them are considering starting a company, considering starting a startup of their own. What's your advice to somebody in that position, Aileen? I think you just dip your toe in the water, like figure out, you know, sometimes you think you're sitting on the best idea ever, right? And if only you had the fortitude to get out there and do it, then everything would be great. The fact is, whatever idea you have is probably going to be very, like either it's wrong or even if it's right, it's going to change a lot. So, 
you don't have to be so attached to that particular idea and put all your eggs in that basket. But um, if you do think that you're onto something, find a way to try it out. You know, in our case, it was putting up that marketing site and seeing if anybody signs up. That's not the solution to everything. Some businesses are much more complicated than just putting up a marketing site saying, join our waiting list. But many businesses aren't. So think like, what is what is that core idea that you have and um, how can you validate it very, very fast? And then if it looks like there's something there, uh, then then go all in. But I think just just seeing some encouragement from the world where where somehow the world says back to you, I want your idea um, is, is going to be very fulfilling and is going to make it easier uh, to take that plunge. But before you take the plunge, you can just dip your toe in the water. Dip your toe in the water. You heard it here first. Aileen, my pleasure as always talking to you. So glad you came on the podcast. Thank you. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to with interviewing IO and what's going on in your personal life as well? If you share that sort of thing online. Well, uh, you can go to interviewing.io. I, uh, you know, you asked me the stuff I did wrong. I think like there's sort of a blessing and a curse when your name is also a domain name, (laughs) but that is the name of our company. That is where you go. Um, Please check out our blog. And if anybody has questions about starting a company or hiring or anything, um, you can email me at Aileen, A-L-I-N-E at interviewing.io. All right. Thanks so much, Aileen. Thanks, Cortland. You're the best. you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast why don't you head over to itunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review if you're looking for an easy way to get there just go to ndhackers.com slash review and that should open up itunes on your computer i read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there and it really helps other people to discover the show so your support is very much appreciated in addition if you are running your own internet business or if that's something you hope to do someday you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.